Welcome to Eat Well, Travel Better, the Business of Food Travel podcast with Eric Wolf and Ashi Vale, where we help you become a better industry professional by gaining inspiration from some of the world's most successful people in the food and beverage tourism industry. With each episode, we meet these leaders and examine their secrets of success. We reveal the obstacles and challenges they have faced, along with their solutions and triumphs, and give you ideas and inspirations for many of the same business issues that you may be facing as well. And now for today's episode. This month's episode is brought to you by World Food Travel Market, the world's first and only dedicated business-to-business marketplace connecting food and beverage tour operators, tourist guides, travel sellers, and related businesses in the food and beverage travel trade. Join today at worldfoodtravelmarket.com. Welcome, I'm Eric Wolf, and I'll be your host today for episode 36 of Eat Well, Travel Better, the Business of Food Travel podcast. Normally, I would be joined by my co-host, Ashi Vale, who is on maternity leave for the next few episodes. Today, we'll be speaking with Mark Lehane, originally from Australia. Mark has traveled extensively and now calls British Columbia home. Mark worked in the corporate world as a software developer for a decade before deciding to follow her true passion of connecting people with nature, and now is one of the owners of Great Bear Lodge. The floating lodge hosts guests from all over the world to see the grizzly bears of the sublime Great Bear Rainforest off the coast of British Columbia. Mark has a master's in tourism management from Royal Roads University and loves to adventure and hike in the mountains. You can learn more about her at greatbeartours.com. Welcome, Mark. Well, hi, Eric. It's nice to be here. Mark, I was looking at, at some information about you before the show, and it sounds like you're a people person. Now, are you born as a people person, or do you evolve into a people person? Isn't that a great question? Well, I was born the youngest of seven siblings, so that kind of made me a people person because it was a busy household. But I do actually think of myself as a social introvert. So I love being with people, but I definitely need time alone. And I've always been like that. For sure. Yeah, no, I understand. I think I'm probably the same. I love people, but they have to be in small doses. Well, and it's it's interesting because you were a software developer and, and now you're in the hospitality business and some people might not connect the dots there. How did that happen? Well, I think my passion has just always been travel. And when I was looking at what to study at university, I had an interest in software development. And I thought, isn't that a great career in that you can work in pretty much any country in the world because people are always looking for technology folks and you get paid well. So if you work it well, you can work for part of the year and travel for part of the year. So that was the reason. And I'm a bit of a geek, so I enjoyed it. But I did that for 10 years. And then I just realized, you know, I'm not traveling enough. I need more adventure in my life. Let me step back for a year and maybe do some traveling and spend some time outdoors and I just kind of fell into this situation where I started being a kayak guide, splitting my time between Mexico and Canada and uh, previously been living in California in Silicon Valley. So I started doing that and then got this opportunity to work for a very small bear viewing company. And yeah, so I started working for them and then I thought I'd do it for a year and I just realized I think this is really what I'm supposed to do. So I signed on with the business, became one of the owners and just started growing the company from there. You grew up outside Melbourne, Australia, a great city. Why did you want to leave? Just always been curious about what else is going on in the world. I love travel for that reason in that you can't even imagine how other people live until you start traveling. And I'm always curious about what people's lives are like, how they live their lives 
what food they're eating, you know, how they, you know, structure their family and social life. So I've just always been curious. I've just always thought there was more than the suburbs of Melbourne. So I remember when I got my first uh, job with Accenture and uh, after six months, I took us all to a meeting and said, "Uh, well, we'd like some of you to volunteer to go overseas. And I put my hand up and they said, you don't even know where the project is. And I said, I don't care. I just want to go everywhere. It's just always fascinated me to find out how other people live their lives. Well, you Aussies tend to be prolific travelers, that's for sure. That's right. Although not in my family, all of my siblings have remained uh, pretty close to Melbourne and have wonderful family lives and love their sporting clubs. And, uh, and I could have followed that path too, but I just figured there was a bigger world out there. Yeah. Well, the Australian quality of life is great. I lived in Sydney myself for a year. I was uh, doing an internship as part of my university training and I loved it, but I went back to Sydney about 15, 20 years later, and it had become the New York of the Southern Hemisphere. It was, it was shocking how big it had gotten. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it has changed a lot. You know, I left uh, Australia when I was in 93 and moved to the States and then the UK. And when I go home now, I can see a big difference. It's a faster pace of life. And uh, it used to be that weekends were sacrosanct for Australians. You know, you worked hard, your 40 hours a week so that you could have a great quality of life outside of work. And I just feel like it's a lot busier now. People work a little bit harder. Yeah, which is kind of a shame. I always really like that about Australia. Well, and being on the west coast of Canada, it's, it's pretty easy to hop a flight. Well, not now, but it normally would be easy to hop a flight from Vancouver to, to Sydney or Melbourne and you're back home. Yeah, that's right. And I go home for probably a month or two every year to visit my family and just reconnect with Australian humour, which is always fun. And it's just a mere 15-hour flight from Vancouver to Melbourne, so that's over in a heartbeat. Yeah, just have a sleep, and next thing you know, you're you're waking up on Aussie soil. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I have to say you landed in one of the most beautiful places in the world. I love that entire Cascadian area, sometimes called the Pacific Northwest, but I tend to call it Cascadia, where you have that kind of temperate rainforest and you have the the Rockies where the Rockies and the Cascade Mountains come together there in Southern BC. The scenery is spectacular. The people are lovely. The blueberries from BC are outstanding. (laughs) But you're even one step further towards amazing out on Vancouver Island. Do you ever feel that you're a little isolated or do you, do you really like it there? Well, and it's interesting because my business is not even on Vancouver Island. To get to my business, you need to fly uh, from Port Hardy, which is a small community on the northern tip of Vancouver Island. You take a half hour float plane ride back over to the coast to the Great Bear Rainforest. And our floating lodge is at the head of an inlet or a fjord, and there's nothing else out there. So there's no other community. So if you want to talk isolated, that is very isolated. And I, for the first 10 years that we had the lodge, I would spend my whole year there, and obviously coming in and out, but I would spend winters there as well as summers. And uh, so we have guests May through October. And then once the guests would go it'd be myself or maybe one other person out there for the winter and that was isolated i could imagine my gosh i mean the solitude the quiet the loneliness even how did you get through it? yeah part of it was that we were building the business and so there was always a lot of work to do when you're a small business uh in hospitality 
when the guests are there, that's what you're focused on. But of course, there's lots of other things that you need to be doing for the business. So it was pretty busy. It was also the first time I went up there by boat, I felt like I was in a National Geographic documentary. And I, I still had that feeling now. So it's, it was never a hardship to, to spend a winter there because in some ways you felt like you had your own, you were living in your own Yellowstone with no one else there. So, you know, we have bears and wolves and cougars and, and whales will come up and dolphins. So it's, it's spectacular and it felt like such an amazing opportunity just to be out there. I am still incredibly grateful that this is something that's come to me in my life. In supernatural British Columbia. <laughs> That's right. It is supernatural. <laughs> the province's tourism tagline. Well, it sounds like you are a classic example of transformation through travel. And I think that has happened to so many people. And yeah, I have always said travel is the best education. So I certainly understand how you ended up where you did. Now, I've got to ask you, your business is named Great Bear Lodge. How frequent is it for people to see bears when they come visit? It depends on the season. So I would say that in a normal year, all of our guests see bears. There are some years, particularly right in the middle of summer, that there might be a couple of guests who don't see bears. And all of our guests stay for three nights. So they're out for six, on six safari sessions. So it's pretty darn unusual that they don't see bears. But we do have different seasons. So our peak season for viewing the bears is in autumn when the salmon come in. So we have a, we're right there at beautiful Salmon River and we have three species, pink coho and chum, all return back to the river in autumn. And so that just draws the bears down from the mountaintops. And we have lots of bears then. That's when we see lots of cubs. You know, it's really fun. We sit on, we've got some platforms that we've built on the riverbanks and we'll just sit there and watch the bears as they go fishing. So, so that's definitely our peak season. I think my secret favourite time is in spring. So that's the mating season. That's when we see the big males. And what's really cool about that is that it's not just the mating, but it's all the behavior around it. So you'll have a big male who's hanging out with the female for a couple of days, and then you'll have some little male will come into the valley and is just kind of hanging around the edges a couple of hundred meters away, just hoping for his chance. And then maybe you'll have another big bear that will come that will be of the same size. So they have to compete. And of course, bears don't want to make contact, but they have all sorts of great behaviors that they do to, to try to intimidate each other or to, to communicate with each other. So They'll leave their scent everywhere. You know, one of the things they do is they, they rub their paws into the ground to leave their scent. So they'll do that maybe on a well-used trail where a lot of bears come into the valley. They'll do it right across the entrance so that other bears know, oof, boxcar Willie's back in the valley. I don't know, maybe I should just turn <laughs> around and, and go back to the valley I was in. They'll rub on trees. So there's all sorts of really interesting behaviours around that. And it's all, they're there also to eat the sedge, which grows on the estuary. So that, they're pretty cool times. Summer is a little quieter in our valley because that's when they're, they're eating berries. And so they can eat berries anywhere. They're all over the hillside. So sometimes we'll get like a mum and cubs will stay down with us and we'll get bears passing through. But they're kind of our two peak seasons, spring and, and autumn. 
it's quite interesting what you were saying about the bear behavior. And I wanted to ask you if you have learned any lessons about life by watching any of the wildlife, because I am fascinated sometimes you look at the how trees grow, right? Or how birds fly or the mating rituals of bears, for example. And has watching wildlife in such a pure location affected you and taught you anything special? Mm, that's a great question. Watching wildlife, and it's not just so much the wildlife, but it's the environment they're in. I think one of the big things for me is that when you're doing that, your pulse slows down and you're so absorbed in what you're watching that, that you really relax. There's no phones, there's no internet, there's no distractions, but you are just completely absorbed in watching dramas play out amongst species that aren't yours. And I think what that has taught me, like, it's just that sense of calm and engagement with the natural world. And that I carry that into other parts of my life. So it's a sense that I don't think I ever got when I was living in the city, like that real true deep sense of calm and, and connecting with the natural world around you. So I think that's something that I have learned. So when you do go to a bigger city and not just Vancouver, but let's take a bigger city like Los Angeles or New York or even Sydney, how does that affect you? Because you are coming now from such a calm, peaceful location. I think one of the first things I noticed, well, the first thing I noticed is that I can always smell cities before I get to them. And, you know, your sense of smell gets very sharp in the wilderness because you're not bombarded with all sorts of different artificial sense all the time so if I'm driving to a city I can often smell it but once I get there I find I'm overstimulated so you're on the subway and there's lots of advertising on the subway or everywhere you you drive there's billboards so I'm just not used to having all those triggers all over the place so read me look at me you know there's lots of things that are competing for your attention so I always find the first day or two that I engage with everything because I'm not used to stepping back and shielding myself from that because it's also new. So I always get tired. And then I realize, no, when you live in a city, you can't engage with every person. You're not Crocodile Dundee in New York. And you don't have to read everything that's put in front of you. You just, yeah, you just kind of get in your bubble a little bit, I guess. So would you say that your ability to focus has been improved by living in such a rural location? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's that sense of calm and purpose without distraction, I think has been really important to me. And that, uh, yeah, that's helped me a lot. I want to ask you something. You said no internet, but obviously we're talking by internet now. So what, what does that mean? No internet? <laughs> You're asking me to give away a guest secret here. Well, right now I'm actually in Port Hardy on Vancouver Island. I'm flying out to the lodge soon, but not today. And we have internet at the lodge for the business. We have satellite internet and, you know, we need it to run the business. We need it to communicate with our office in Port Hardy, but we don't offer it to the guests. And originally, and still, it's because we don't have enough bandwidth over our satellite connection. But I really appreciate now that people can put down their devices and they actually talk to each other. Think about if we had Wi-Fi, guests would come back from safaris, they'd be super excited about what they saw, they'd all disappear into their rooms and be updating social media to, to share that with their friends and family. But by not having internet, they'll come back down from their rooms, they'll pour a glass of wine, and everyone sits around and talks about what they saw. 
And I love that. I love hearing the guests talk about, did you see when this happened? The guide told me this, that this is really interesting. And I just don't think those conversations would happen if we had Wi-Fi there. So even if we got the best satellite system in the world that would give us a bandwidth to open it up to guests, I, I won't ever do it because I love seeing people interact like that. You know, it's interesting. You just gave me a thought of the lost art of conversation. And I want to just take this and run with it for a little bit because the conversation that you have with someone over a glass of wine or at dinner is different than what someone might say is a conversation on Facebook. That It's a dialogue on Facebook. It's quick quips back and forth. But, you know, yes, of course, you could read an article and you could have a maybe a, a short discussion about an article. But the mere fact that you're not looking at the other person's face, you're not looking at their lips moving, you're not looking in their eyes, you are not shaking their hand, you're not looking at their reactions while they're eating or drinking. It's a very one-way communication, I think. But when you're in person, it's almost like being in their energy, you know, and your energies combine and, and create something new and different. It's um, it's a very different thing. And I think people are kind of maybe losing this art of conversation. Yeah, I think so too. And I, I feel like we're usually pretty brief on social media just because it takes an effort to text it out. And I feel like what we talk about sometimes is quite superficial. So, so I love watching people interacting. And it's also... I think you display more curiosity about the other person in person. So if you're communicating with someone on social media, I feel like sometimes you're talking about more, you're talking, like you're expressing yourself. But when you're sitting face to face with someone, you have curiosity about, about them. And so you're like, well, let me tell me more about your life and, and what's your life experiences and what's your passion? And so I love seeing those conversations unfold. And especially I even find when there's a phone within reach, it so often comes into the conversation. Let me Google that and see what the answer to that is. And so I find when that is just completely taken out of the equation, there's nothing that people have to rush off and do. I think you have time to, to sort of luxuriate in finding out about someone else. And I think the other thing about social media is that there are multiple simultaneous conversations happening. So let's talk about Facebook, right? You're you're responding to something on a post, your messages are coming in in Messenger, and then you see an alert over here, and then there's advertising popping around, and you can't focus. But if you're in a room with other people, there's one single conversation taking place, and you, you have no choice but to focus and participate in that one conversation. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And then not only the nonverbal cues as well. So, I mean, so much about humor. I don't know. When you have French friends, it seems like a lot of their humor is, is really physical. And you miss out on that on social media too. So I just think there's a real richness to interacting in person that we don't get as much on social media. Yeah, I think that one of the lessons here really is to make sure to reconnect with nature, to reconnect with the far away, the distant, and, and just kind of find yourself again. Because if you don't, you just you can kind of be taken over by the big city. Does that make sense? Yeah, it certainly does. And I always think we should give ourselves, when we're not in that environment, we should put our electronics away for a weekend. But you know, so few of us do that. And I think when you do, it's not only your interactions with other people, but it's also the way you think. So you're not thinking in that rapid response, I want information, I'll give you information, this is all so fast. You start thinking more deeply and, and, and I really like that. 
It's funny when I moved to the UK and the UK being an Anglo culture, it's very similar to the US in a lot of ways, but people didn't work on the weekend here. And I remember we were producing an event right before World Travel Market and it was scheduled to take place on a Sunday and everyone thought we were crazy to schedule something on the weekend. And I couldn't understand what the big deal was, why people wouldn't just schedule the time for the weekend or get work done on the weekend. And my team always laughs at me because I'm the only person who responds to emails on the weekends or late at night. And they're all having fun and doing things with their families. And I, I do too, but I still have that American kind of always on approach. And I have slowed down, but I think maybe, <laughs> maybe I need to come for a visit at Great Bear Lodge. <laughs> That's right. I, and, you know, I found that when I first moved to the States that, you know, I felt like Australians worked uh, really hard in their 40 hours, but then weekends and after work was so important. But I found that in the States, there was more an expectation to be working longer hours and on weekends and that that was rewarded. You know, if you were working on a Saturday, it was seen that you were really committed to the company. And I just felt like, well, Australians do the same amount of work. We're just a lot more productive because we don't want to give up our weekends. And it's really interesting to hear during this COVID crisis where countries like New Zealand and other places are talking about a four-day work week and re-establishing some really good work-life balance and just being really productive in the times that you work. But I feel like we definitely skewed a long way away from that and put work ahead of nearly everything else in our life. You know, Marg, you're absolutely right. Work smarter, not harder. And it's also about the quality of the work, not the quantity of the hours you put into it. That's right. And, you know, we can all find more to do. There's, it, we're, there's always more things to do, but just making sure that every morning you focus on what is it that is really critical for my business to get done today. And I think if you have that focus, then you're getting the most effective things done. Indeed. I, did, I have to ask you, choosing to live where you live, which is a very, very special place, and I understand the, the attraction, but did you ever think at some point that I, I'm crazy, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop, I'm going to go back to either Silicon Valley or Melbourne or somewhere else, I'm just going to stop doing this, so it's not working. Did you ever have that feeling? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I, oh gosh, no. It, it, I think it's what I was meant to do. And it was interesting. The first couple of years were fantastic. And my father was constantly telling me, you've thrown away your education and your professional experience because he thought I'm just a, a lowly kayak guide or bear guide. You know, he didn't understand that I wanted to create a company out of this. So he was constantly telling me that I needed to get back into the corporate world. And I had to sit him down after a couple of years and say, Dad, I, I think this is what I was meant to do. And there's really only one thing that I find stressful about it, and that is you <laughs> telling me that I shouldn't be doing it. So no, I mean, I certainly, everything's a trade-off. I miss the, the intellectual stimulation of being on a big project. I miss being in a city and having a fantastic dinner party with really interesting people. So I try to really make sure that I get back into, that I do that, that I come back into cities and, and meet with some great people and, and try to stay connected with them when I'm out at the lodge. So that's all really important. But oh my gosh, if, yeah, if you could see where we work, I don't think anyone would want to not be there. <laughs> Now, you're still young. You have many years to continue working on the lodge and, your, and growing your business. But have you thought about what legacy you might want to leave behind when, when you're ready to retire? Yeah, that's interesting. Firstly, from the business standpoint, my 
hope is that we will be handing this business over to the local First Nations. We operate on the traditional territory of the Gwasal and Aquakta Nation and have a great relationship with them. And I really hope that when we get to the point that we'd like to retire, that they take the business over because what a wonderful thing for them to have in their territory. And they, I'm sure, would use it in ways, in addition to bear viewing, they could also use it for elders retreats and take high schools out onto their land and, and see um, and, you know, learn more about the plants and animals. So from a business standpoint, I would love to do that. That would give me great pleasure and then just from a personal standpoint I'm very concerned about the environment and always have been and I've been thinking about what I would like to leave behind and I think what I will start working towards is I would love to have some land somewhere or be involved in either habitat restoration or putting aside land to conserve it I think with climate change we don't know what's coming in the future for ecosystems but we do need to keep them healthy so if I have done nothing else in this world but think you know there's a there's a part of wilderness somewhere where the animals are thriving where the air's clean where the water's clean and hopefully that sets up the people and the animals there to live well into the future I think that that would be pretty amazing sure why not <laughs> that's right <laughs> tell, tell us about how, how that quote came to be <laughs> I don't know that's just kind of how I live my life my friends always laugh because if they say would you like to do an adventure this weekend I'm always sure why not but even with work if any of the staff come to me and say you know I've got that new idea for something I always think sure let's give it a try why not what's the worst thing that could happen it's kind of like the the whole concept with improv where you have to say yes and then build on it so I think that's a great way to go through life because uh, you're only learning and, and growing and meeting new people and experiencing new things if you're just open to new experiences. You know, that's a great approach to have this very positive outlook and being open to these new experiences, like you said. Some people, though, are stuck in their ways. They're intolerant of other processes, other people, other cultures. And that's not how Marg rolls, is it? No, I mean, we're seeing a lot of protests at the moment about people being treated unjustly and without equality, which is wonderful. And I've always been very uncomfortable with the idea of people being treated differently based on race or economic position or gender or any of those sorts of things. I feel incredibly fortunate to have now found myself being a citizen of Canada because I think it is an incredibly tolerant country and it not only tolerates diversity, it celebrates it in a very, very active way. The way I see Canadians embrace immigrants, embrace people who are different to themselves, just makes me feel incredibly proud that I can now call this country my co-home in addition to Australia. What an opportunity we all have in our lives every day to make sure that everyone around us feels respected and included and heard. And diversity is a pretty wonderful thing. Like we have so much to learn from other people. So in my perfect world, and hopefully we'll get there, everyone will be equal and will be open to hearing about the lives of others. You know, that's, it's very interesting what you said about Canada, and I would have to agree. I think Canada is a country that understands that it is built on immigration, and many other New World countries are as well. The United States, Australia, New Zealand, just to name a few, Brazil. 
but I don't think that they embrace immigrants to the extent or to the warmth that the Canadians do. I think Canadians understand the economic impact. They understand the sociocultural impact. I never feel really any strife in Canada. It seems like everyone just kind of understands and is all moving in the same direction. And then you look at other societies and there's always this kind of undercurrent of there's a, a wheel missing or something as, as the car is trying to go forward and, and not everyone is all rowing in the same direction. Do you, do you know what I mean? Do you, do you have that sense? Yeah, I do. I do. And it makes it an incredibly wonderful place to live. So even looking at the response of British Columbia residents to coronavirus, what's uppermost in most people's minds is the health of the community. Lockdown is, all, is, of course, a challenge for everyone, but everyone here says, well, what we need to do this for the health of other people, for the health of the vulnerable people in our community. And that, to me, just exemplifies what it's like to live in Canada, where there is definitely a very strong feeling towards greater good rather than individual good. And, of course, there's, not everything is perfect, but it is definitely a place that just really, really takes great pride, I think, in, in making sure that everyone in society is well looked after. It's interesting that you mentioned the coronavirus. I have been following the statistics, and I think there is something to be said for the countries that are leading in the total number of cases around the world. So I'm going to just, I'm, I'm on a website right now as we're speaking, and I'm going to tell you where Canada ranks. So Canada right now, as of today, ranks 19th in the world with 103,000 infections, which is high, but it's not a disaster. First place, United States with 2.7 million, Brazil, 1.4 million, Russia, 650,000, India, 582,000, UK, 312. Are we noticing anything here? <laughs> oh, sorry, I didn't realize this is a political podcast. <laughs> no, no, it's not, not at all. I, and in, in fact, I think we can just let our listeners draw their own conclusions <laughs> from the data. The data speaks for itself. So suffice it to say that cultures are different everywhere in the world, and um, every everyone's different. And Anyway, I think that's what makes the world a fantastic place is that we are all different and we all have a different perspective on things. And the real challenge is just to see how, how we can all get along and as a planet all row in the same direction. Right, absolutely. And I think some of the extremes that we're seeing now, I'm hoping they're just a pendulum swim that will have an opposite reaction um, in, the, in the coming years. I think it's easy to see what countries are doing wrong and if you look at a country like New Zealand or Canada and say, gosh, those countries are doing really well. So what is it that they're doing well? Yeah. Mm. Well, after this is all over and you can get on a plane again and not to Australia because that's home originally, where would be your first holiday to get away and get back into exploring other cultures? Where would you want to go first? All going well. I'm hoping next year to go back to Nepal with some friends. I trekked there in 2001 and 2011. So I'm hoping to go back and do a different trek in 2021. It'll be great to, to go trekking with those same people. And I just love Nepal because the people are incredibly wonderful. I mean, obviously the scenery is great. I love doing active vacations because it connects you with the scenery and the people in a way that you can't do when you're sitting in a car. But it's really the people. Like they are 
just incredibly fun and generous and they're just lovely to be around. So that will be, I think, my first planned vacation. That's a good plan. You know, the people do make the place. And we did an event in Kathmandu last year. We were going to do it again this year. It's one of our food trucks events, but of course that was uh, canceled for this year. But I went there last year and we did our event and the people blew me away. They're so hospitable, so kind, so calm, so open to outsiders. I mean, I guess they have to be because they're such a small country that everyone is coming from a bigger country, really. Well, that's right. And it's also interesting too, like how down in the valley, you get more of a sort of Hindu culture and then up up in the mountains, it kind of feels more Tibetan. So you have, even though it's a small country with a small population, there's definitely diversity within their cultures. And I really love that aspect of it too. They do. You know, Nepal is at a crossroads of cultures. And and in fact, you can imagine we were looking at everything from the culinary perspective, the gastronomy perspective. And Nepal considers itself to be at a culinary crossroads between India and China and the Arab countries with their cuisines and so on. And even Southeast Asia is just over, over the mountains. So it really is a hub. And it's fascinating to see how they kind of interact as a player in the region because they it's kind of like a a balance you know and they're right in the middle of everything and yeah they're great people and i've I've got some good contacts there so i'll be happy to to share those with you and pass them along because i think that yes there's there's so much yet to be discovered in such it's such a small country but there's so much you can discover there that's right and that's also a country that i feel like i can make an impact an economic impact as a tourist one of my uh, stronger friends said, well, we can do the treks without porters. And I said, yeah, but we're providing employment that otherwise wouldn't be there if we're paying porters. So, so I really love that. I definitely, when I go there, I feel like my tourism dollars are helping improve people's lives. And that gives me great pleasure as a tourist. Let me ask you about that. And I've this is something I've always wondered too. When I go to a destination that is on a different purchasing power scale than say where I'm coming from and I'm spending money and some part of me feels guilty that I'm here spending money and maybe getting them used to too much income. So are, are we spoiling them by visiting them so much? In, in 50 years, are they going to be the next over-touristed destination that's spoiled by greed and corruption and so on? And on one hand, I agree with you, we're, we're supporting the, the economy, we're providing jobs, we're giving taxes to the government. But on the other hand, I just wonder if we're also kind of destroying the very thing that we love. I think it's easy for us to look at other cultures, especially when developing countries and say, I would like it to stay where it is. I don't want them to have satellite dishes on top of their rooftops in the village. I want it to be different and I I want to preserve it in a way that I feel like is a throwback to another time. But if you're one of those residents living there, you probably don't feel like that. You probably want TV. You probably want more income to maybe send your kids to school in in the city. So I feel like we've got to be really careful about imposing what we want to experience as a tourist and what the local people want and encouraging them to keep alive what makes their culture so special. So not expecting necessarily things from our cultures like imported beers and and wines and stuff when we really should be enjoying what, what makes their place unique. Right, absolutely. And I feel like tourism is moving away from that sort of, let's just have this brand name hotel in various countries in the world that feels very similar. You could be anywhere. And I feel like there's more of a movement away to let's really 
give it a strong sense of place and have a real connection to the community there and to what their culture feels like and their food feels like. As sad and devastating as this pandemic is, I think that one of the silver linings in the cloud of it all is that we are starting to give more attention to and support of and interest in our different cultures everywhere. It, it's something that we're seeing in cuisine. People are learning how to cook again. They're going back to their grandmother's recipes. And it is actually having a little bit of a, a positive renaissance in cuisine. Right. And I also love that people are starting to grow their own food again. The majority of my friends are all growing food now. And I think part of it is that we're all spending more time at home. So we feel like we have time to, to tend the gardens. But also, it's just it's such an enriching feeling to know that kale that I pulled out of the, of the dirt is just so full of nutrients and so grown with love. And it's going to be the part of my salad tonight. So I really love, I think from a food security standpoint, it's wonderful. But just also having people connect with the ingredients that's going into their food. I'm really enjoying seeing that. I just hope things don't change when people get back to the rat race, that they don't look at this, oh, that was a, a lovely three to four month holiday. Well, back back to work and everything changes <laughs> again. I hope that they'll remember what this pandemic taught them in terms of what's important. Yes, and I know what we will all appreciate is being able to go out to amazing restaurants again with our friends at will. Isn't <laughs> and that the I think truth? I will appreciate that for decades to come. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I, I definitely have some favorite meals that I'm missing right now. So let's just cross our fingers and hope that we can get to that point sooner than later. Marg, this has been a fascinating discussion. You definitely have a lot of passion in what you do, and you're such a happy person. I mean, it's contagious. I hear the happiness through the airwaves. I envy where you are because I know how beautiful that part of the world is. But at the same time, I am so happy that you found the place that makes you so happy. So thank you again for taking the time to chat with us today, and I wish you all the best at Great Bear Lodge. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. It was lovely speaking with you. Thanks for listening today. The Eat Well, Travel Better podcast is brought to you by the World Food Travel Association, the world's leading authority on food and beverage tourism. Our mission is to preserve and promote culinary cultures through hospitality and travel. By doing so, we empower local communities and entrepreneurs with the knowledge and tools needed to reach new food lovers and gain a competitive edge. Founded in 2003, now each year we shepherd a community of 200,000 professionals in more than 100 countries. Connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram, and you can learn more about us subscribe to our newsletter and join our family at worldfoodtravel.org. Until next time, eat well and travel better.